Oh, wait. What? Is that a corn kernel? Is that? It's a Korok. Oh, from Tears of the Kingdom? Yeah, let me unblur. Yeah, I just got this. Um, so I just carried one of those dudes across a bridge to reunite him with a friend. Yeah, I, like to, I like to attach <laughs> rockets to them and shoot them into outer space. <laughs> yeah, people are doing a lot of nasty stuff to these guys. I, lo I love these little freaks. Uh, people, people are putting like building crosses them on, fire on the back of like horse-drawn <laughs> carriages and they carry them through town. <laughs> it's crazy. <Whoa. laughs> Secret Movie Clubbers. The summer train keeps on rolling. Secret Movie Club Podcast 155. The gang is all here today. We are talking about David Lynch's uh, 90s movie, The Straight Story, which was surprised everybody. A Disney movie, his only G-rated movie, a movie I love that only gets better every time you see it, but certainly not what people would have expected from the person who had just given us Lost Highway or was around the time of Lost Highway and Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Uh, and we're going to talk about David Lynch's straight story. And then, uh, as Connor has said, other directors, oddball entries or unexpected or wow, they they directed that. Who's with us today? What's up? It's Daniel. Hey, gamers. It's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion uh, here with a guy who didn't watch the movie this time. It's Edwin Gomez. Hello, America. You know, it's it's. Uh... A weird day, you know, a weird day, weird, weird morning, weird life. I don't have a Coke in my hand, you know. I need a Coke right now to get over this uh, this podcast so I can keep on trucking into the to the grapevine. And I'm Craig, the founder, programmer of Secret Movie Club. Uh, let's tell us, let's tell you, audience, what's going on this week. We are almost completely sold out for this Saturday's July 22nd, uh, 35 millimeter Metropolis and live metal score by the silent light. Our 7.30 p.m. sold out, sold out. Uh, as of this recording, which is Thursday night, July 20th, we have 14 tickets left for our midnight, midnight metal Metropolis. You, next week, Wednesday, July 26th, we are doing our open mic short night for July. Please come. It's always great. We have uh, usually a really great selection of filmmakers and their shorts all under 10 minutes. And then Thursday, our El Topo Holy Mountain 35 millimeter Yodorowsky double is sold out. Same thing as Metropolis. Sometimes people don't show, but it is sold out, sold out. Uh, we are doing an encore Friday, July 28th. As starting at 9.45. The, that is on the way to selling out, but we do still have tickets. So if you have never seen an Alejandro Jodorowsky movie, especially on 35, these are two of his, his most well-known. Holy Mountain, I think, is his masterpiece. But I'm a fan of all of them. El Topo, Holy Mountain, Santa Sangre. And as always, you can write us at Eventbrite, or I'm sorry, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets for all our events by just Googling Eventbrite or just go to Eventbrite, Secret Movie Club, follow us. You can find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. And as always, we really appreciate reviews. It really does help us. So if you do like what we're doing, uh, if you could give us a Google review or a Yelp review, or if you're listening to our podcasts uh, and give us an Apple pod or wherever you review podcasts, we appreciate all of it. Thank you very much. Moving on.
sometimes filmmakers will really gravitate towards a story and they'll make it. And a lot of people will say, huh, I never would have imagined that filmmaker would make that story. And uh, I think such was the case when David Lynch, Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Lost Highway, Twin Peaks, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, David Lynch, made a movie called The Straight Story, which was co-written by his wife at the time, uh, editor Mary Sweeney, who actually joined us for a Q&A and is often cited as one of uh, our audience's favorite Q&As of all time uh, when she came to speak about Lost Highway. And it was based on a real uh, story, a gentleman uh, who was in his 70s and really could no longer drive, wanted to visit a family member. So he got on his John Deere lawnmower and he drove about 300 miles on this lawnmower that maybe went five miles an hour, I don't know, 10 miles an hour tops. So it took him a number of days. He camped on the side of the road uh, to visit this family member. And interestingly, on one level, that makes all the sense in the world. It's kind of a strange story. Uh, and it points to somebody's stubbornness and a really interesting character. You can understand why David Lynch made it. What maybe surprised people was the David Lynch made a G-rated movie. There's no violence, no swearing, a very humanist film. Sissy Spacek has a really uh, moving role as, really the movie is anchored by Richard Farnsworth, the amazing Richard Farnsworth, who had been in a number of movies prior to this. A lot of people know him from the Anna Green Gables uh, TV series, if you're of that era, or uh, people know him from, um, he was in a movie I think called The Gray Fox or The Silver Fox. Uh, amazing character actor. Uh, Richard Farnsworth plays Alvin Strait. That's why it's called The Strait Story. The, the, the man who gets on the John Deere lawnmower. Sissy Spacek was his daughter who uh, is uh, sort of uh, differently abled. And uh, someone was actually telling me, Daniel or Connor, you may be able to help me here. And then neurodivergent. Neuro Thank you very much. Okay. My daughter has Down syndrome. Uh, and, uh, you know, someone pointed out to me uh, a long time ago that you want to be careful about calling someone autistic because uh, it's as if that thing is just that's who they are. And instead, you say they have autism or they have Down syndrome or in this case, there's neurotypical neurodivergent. So Sissy Spacek is his neurodivergent daughter, just a sweetheart. But she has her daughter, her kids taken away from her, which is a really touching aspect of it. And then he meets people along the way. And his brother is played by none other than Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, and anyway, straight story. Let's start there. But we're going to use this as uh, the beginning of a conversation about directors, oddball entries or their oddball movies, which sometimes are as interesting as the movies they're known for. Uh, who wants to kick us off? David Lynch, straight story. You know, David Edwin Lynch. didn't see it. All right. Uh, this is this is one of my favorite David Lynch movies. You know, I'll, I'll kind of talk about this a little more when we when we branch out. But I sometimes bristle when people try to box in directors and I have people certain horror more horror inclined people in my life which i am typically who have i think dismissed straight story a little bit and uh i bristle at it because i think it's it is definitely him um using a specific part of his palette for sure um but it it really is him just in pure sweet boy mode um, it's all of the sweet and kind of awkward, funny stuff from like Twin Peaks is probably where it's most noticeable, but it's just that distilled into a movie. And, um, you know, um, uh, I think it's just like a beautiful movie. It's not the kind of movie I, I would typically go for, but something about Lynch's approach to it 
which is still kind of like awkward and there's an alienness in some ways to the to the performances that kind of loops around when it's so focused on them where it becomes like naturalistic um that uh i really like and it's just it's just a very hopeful sweet movie um i actually watched it uh watched it uh the week after uh batman passed over at at daniel's actually because daniel uh hadn't seen it and i was like hey i'll hang out there and we'll we'll uh we'll we'll watch it together um and uh the pacing's a little a slow in a way that i you know probably like young kids wouldn't like it and then there are there will be these little like specific there's like a handful of specific very like in more intense lynch touches like uh there's a car accident at one point and uh, uh he loses control of his <laughs> of his uh his cart at another point um there's also these little touches that i i think is are like kind of funny i'm sure they play in a theater very differently where the sound because like sound is probably the biggest thing that like theaters i think actually have over like home stuff now um even when you have a nice um entertainment system i guess maybe i haven't been in the right ones but um there's a couple of times where he'll just pull back the shot so much of where people are talking um and he'll just but the audio will be from the the shot that's like really far away so you can so people are you're just watching people really far away from you having a conversation that you can't really hear um and uh definitely him kind of you can see him kind of experimenting there um not that he hadn't done it before but with stuff he would do more with like inland empire and the return where he's like really sort of in a in a fun way testing your patience uh it's one of my my favorite movies of all time and uh one of uh lynch's best movies if, if you're familiar with lynch's filmography and enter it with that expectation it's very funny to watch for a good chunk of it because you just keep it you keep getting this teasing sensation that it's about to go full-blown into his usual realm and so it's a it's a funny experience i've had a similar thing with um i don't know this is like a really specific moment but in in link later's boyhood there's a part where the kids are having a party at a, a house that's under construction and there's throwing uh, like buzz saws at a wall and there's a shot that's framed with a, a buzzsaw behind a kid and your brain just goes, oh, he's going to fall into that or he's going to get kicked into that. There's no, the movie has never suggested this is going to happen, but you just assume the worst. Maybe that's just me. Um, I wrote down, uh, I had to go after we finished, I had to go look at the some of the lines from it because there's a lot of great lines. And my favorite line, I think by far is when he's going to buy the grabber and the man says, what do you need that, gra- what do you need that grabber for, Alvin? And he says, grabbing and, <laughs> um yeah i think it's i think it's a genuinely beautiful movie i'm surprised maybe i'm looking at the wrong things but it seems to be very um i guess overlooked in discussions about about lynch mm-hmm. uh and right up in my can it has the same it has the vibe of something like patterson or just sort of this people existing slice of life that's very full it's about the fullness of life and the beauty of the daily because there's definitely like the stakes of the story exist and like the equipment and like health and but it's really more about the connections he makes along the way because his story is so interesting and what he's doing um it brings people in i think brings 
brings strangers into the fold where their stories also matter and the way that uh, Alvin sort of inadvertently affects them. Yeah, in, in some ways you can see this is also narratively it's 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 pretty similar it's kind of similar to the um dougie jones stuff in the return where it's just about this good-natured person going through people's lives and making their lives better connor and i were talking about this we're both from the south and it captures this very specific thing that i think movies often lack when they look at that chunk of the world which is this it's a different there's a different um I guess time, I've always thought time is viewed differently from my extended family in the South. Like their day to day is, is so much about all these quiet moments because there is this community aspect to the things that they do. Cause he, as he's writing, you don't get the, you don't necessarily understand that this is taking him weeks because it's just this thing that's happening for him and there's not anything else going on. And so that, that for him is fine. And I like that. There's not, it doesn't need some, you know, ticking clock of tension to work even though this is and i think we'll talk about it a little more later but even though this is this stands out as being a, an odd piece of lunch's filmography it also fits right in like it's a bunch of weirdos in the loving sense of the word just existing and i think a lot of his work is about kind of this outcast or oddball ish group of people um and this embraces that without any of the maybe the thriller or horror elements um, yeah, and I think it's I think it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. What was interesting for my experience of of seeing S Straight Story again, I, I did see it in the theaters, uh, and then I saw it again. Was it it has the misfortune of being such a quietly beautiful film that it's not a loud declarative statement like Lynch's other movies, and I think that's why it's so underrated and often forgotten is because it affirms the beautiful, quiet moments in life and beats you have with other people that are just as important as the declarative loud voice. It's like the quiet voice movie versus the loud voice movie, but the quiet voice is just as important as the loud voice. The funny thing was that we showed Elephant Man and Straight Story together because they're atypical in some ways of, uh, other Lynch movies, but they're also united in that they're about real people, about real events. Uh, they're the two movies Lynch made that are based on, on real figures. And what was fascinating was they both end identically. Uh, and if you don't watch them back to back, you would never think it, which is that in Elephant Man, uh, John Merrick dies. And when he dies, he passes away in his sleep. It cuts to heaven and he's reunited with his mother in a way. Uh, and his mother embraces him, the mom that he always wondered what happened. And it's it's overpowering uh, in The Elephant Man. And uh, we had people come out sobbing. And in um, the straight story, Alvin is reunited with his brother, who he's been estranged with. And they don't even have that scene. In any other movie, the movie would end with them having a reconciliation. But you know they've already had it. And they sit down on the porch and it goes to space again. And suddenly you're moving through space. And it's the same grammar that Lynch used in The Elephant Man. And in fact, if you watch Eraserhead, there's slightly typical grammar at the end of Eraserhead as well. And Lynch has always been very cagey. I think rightfully so. Lynch has been very cagey 
about talking about his personal spiritual beliefs. Um, although I know in his autobiographies and in his audio books and everyone knows that he, he's a big advocate of TM, but I do TM, which is transcendental meditation. And TM has nothing to do with your spiritual. You can be an atheist, do TM. You can be a Jew, you can be a Hindu, Sufi, whatever, and do TM. It, it's not a spiritual thing. It's just, it's very basic meditation. Um, but Lynch has talked several times and one of the things I found really interesting is when you read uh, Lynch on Lynch, if anyone ever reads it, the interviewer thinks that Lynch is an atheist. And so at one point, the, the interviewer assumes that Lynch believes there's nothing after death. And Lynch gets really uptight about it. And he's like, whoever the guy is, he's very friendly. But he's like, Dan, why would you assume that? Dan's like, well, I, I don't know. You, and, and Lynch is like, you don't know what I believe. I absolutely believe there's something after death. And Lynch gets sort of like, he, he, Lynch, it's the, if you ever read Lynch on Lynch, he's, he's very clear that he's a very spiritual person. Um, and that actually, he's a little unnerved that someone made the assumption that he wasn't spiritual. And the, the other thing I'll say to what you guys were saying is there is a kind of Lynch humor with older people uh, that when you watch Twin Peaks, if anyone remembers a Twin Peaks episode where there's a bank heist, uh, and there's this like old guard who like suddenly Lynch slows the movie down for 20 minutes of this old guard just like walking and then talking to everybody. And but it's very loving. It's always very loving. And or like the um, the uh, the guy at the beginning of season two who keeps checking on Dale Cooper as he's. Oh, right. Yeah. Shot. <laughs> totally. Um yeah. There, and there's this thing, and and uh, you, uh, Daniel's already talked about it, but that grabber scene is hilarious to me because yeah. the guy who runs the general store, it's like he doesn't want to let go of the grabber. It's and he's yeah. like, oh, Alvin, it's going to take me three weeks <laughs> to reorder I think, I think, that. I think you're sort of speaking to like what Lynch to me at his core is is all, like love and empathy. Love and I think especially empathy radiate through his stuff and like the these experiences people have with each other um, are the connective tissue whether good or bad I think they that defines it and that exists the same way in the straight story as it does in Blue Velvet or Mulholland or Twin Peaks. The and I will just end and then we'll go to the second part and Edwin you're up you're on deck you're back in. Uh, I will just end by saying that uh, as I think has already been said I think Straight Story is one of his greatest movies. And um, like so many movies that maybe don't catch fire or people <laughs> were expecting something different. Um, I think once you have the shock of seeing it the first time and being like, oh, that's not like other Lynch movies. The second, the third, the fourth time, you can see it for what it is, which is this incredibly beautiful, as it's already been said by Daniel and Connor much better, but incredibly beautiful empathetic. Come on, um, Yanis, let's get it out on Criterion. Baby, you've done all yeah. the other ones. You did Wally. Why not? It is. It's it's crazy to see Walt Disney Pictures presents a David Lynch film. We we allow certain directors to like expand beyond a certain style of film, and some we don't essentially. And so, right. you know, like I, I sometimes I sometimes bristle at it because you know I love genre directors when they branch out. You know, I think I think a good example is who who would have thought? I don't think in the now it's an oddball entry. It certainly isn't. It's like half his career. But who would have thought Peter Jackson doing Lord of the Rings would have been able to get that sort of scale and scope considering? the sort of the more like goofy comedy 
uh, uh, horror mm. stuff he had been doing up until that point. I think um, Sam Raimi, I, I would say in the same camp, uh, even though he hasn't done quite as much stuff post Spider-Man is that. What? Did he, he did a, didn't he do a baseball movie? For the I love mean, of the game. He did do mm-hmm. a baseball movie. That's probably his actual oddball entry. But when you, when you think about it, there's like, there's a definitely a, a depth of emotion in his Spider-Man movies that we haven't really seen from his previous films. Like a simple plan, I guess, is probably the first one. Yeah, I, I, I like it when directors like move around and shift and stuff. You know, Spielberg is like one of my favorites, but he's made so much. I guess 1941 would be the probably the most Odyssey Ball because it's the only real like comedy movie he made. Um, because yeah, yeah, yeah. every every everything else like fits into a couple of like his wavelengths, you know. Oh, that's interesting. I might argue weirdly that the color purple and the terminal would be in looking back, yeah. Uh, you know, the idea that he was going to adapt the Alice Walker novel, The Color Purple. I mean, I don't think he would do it today. But, but I think I think I think the color purple and to a lesser degree terminal fit into the Spielberg wavelength of the sort of like historical drama thing that he he did. But doesn't nineteen forty one fit into his obsession with World War Two? Mm-hmm. Sure, but I think I think on a like more like structural, like story story level, um, it's it's like this weird ensemble comedy thing, and mm. uh, it's like, him trying either... to do strange love. Yeah, and um, I don't feel like he ever he ever did that before. He would do these. He would do he would do these very personal, like historical base. I mean, terminals, quote unquote, historical. But no, the movie I, I didn't think of is Walter Hill's only comedy, Brewster Millions. Yeah, that's a good. That's a totally good call. Yeah, because I just realized this this this, this this guy made like a whole bunch of seventies and eighties action movies until he made this little uh, piece of gem. With Richard Pryor and John Candy, it's, it, I think it might be the only comedy he's ever done. I, it, it works, it works, sort of, but you know, it's a great review. It's not that far. It's, it's, oh my god, it's not that great. It's funny some parts. Uh, Richard Pryor's always good another to see good full cool quote. That's Steph <laughs> Connor. Right, I'm ringing it. I've seen him in years, but uh, yeah, that's that's my take. It's Brewster Millions, Walter Hill. Uh, yeah. That's all I got. I need no, to see that, it again. That's solid. That that is. When I saw it, I didn't know that until you brought in the VHS cassette, and yeah. I was like, "Oh yeah, Brewster's Millions." I saw that in the theater, and I remember even as an eight-year-old, uh, it wasn't that funny. I remember no, the, the movie being funny. very wonky, uh, and it has a third act that goes on forever when he runs for political office. Uh-huh. And, and, uh huh. And the then I was like, "Who directed that one?" And that was Walter Hill. Yeah, Walter Hill, man. The guy who made 40 Hours, Driver, Hard Times, Streets of Fire, Warriors, greatest 70s, 80s director of all time. Someone you don't wow. appreciate. Greatest 70s. So better than Scorsese. This is action, all right? This is action. Uh, okay, so greatest action 70s director. Oh, 80s, freaking. 80s. Freaking, all right? Okay. He ain't a Walter Hill. Um, I, I went the, the reverse. I went... I went with the reverse concept of a straight story, the straight story in terms of um, uh, people outside in the oddball space, the stuff that kind of works and mostly brought up because they're getting, they're doing a restoration this summer of one of my favorite movies, uh, old boy. And that was Spike Lee's attempt at a remake uh, 10 years ago with uh, Josh Brolin and Elizabeth Olsen and Samuel L. Jackson. How how does film? 
Yeah, so that's 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 sort of the the start of the conversation is that the movie's reputation is not good, but Spike Lee also at some point, which I've I've did some reading and it's apparently there was a lot of studio meddling. And at a certain point, he he removed his spitely joint like stamp from it, and it just says a Spike Lee film because he didn't even approve of it essentially. And I haven't found a ton where he talks about it in depth, but I it's the only movie that I know of that he has done that on. I think there might be one other, but I, but that was but like kind of earlier, but I could be wrong. Yeah, you might. Yeah, I I've, I should have. I, sometimes I say things and I'm like, why didn't I just Google this before I spoke out loud? Um, <laughs> But it's sort of the thing of this, this is a project that there's a, ver- when this was announced, there's a version of this where, cause there's always like the initial, you know, why would you do this? Like it's a, this masterpiece exists. Why would we remake it uh, with an American sensibility? But when Spike Lee was attached, you're sort of, it's sort of interesting. You're like, Oh, what will he, br-? like he is such a prominent, interesting stylistic, um, you know, this very, very defined voice of a director. What, what is he going to bring to it? And it's wild to see that, like, really nothing. Like, it's it's sort of just this kind of recreation that falls apart on most levels. What's in interesting about someone like Spike Lee, too, is that even his misfires, and he has misfires, but even mm-hmm. his misfires usually feel like Spike Lee movies. I, I would be curious. The only other one I was debating on was um, Fincher's Benjamin Button. Do you mm. guys, what are your guys' thoughts on Benjamin Button? As, I like it. As a Fincher piece. I like it. I think it's great. It's a great picture. I'm embarrassed. I mean, maybe this says all you need to know. I've never seen it. It's okay. fine. It's fine. You don't need to see it, Craig. You probably will hate it. It's. I think it's better. It's not as boring as Alien 3. <laughs> That's the pull quote I'll give to Benjamin Button. Not as boring as Alien 3. <laughs> what do you think, Daniel? I, I'm pretty... I, I don't really know. I haven't... It's another one I haven't rewatched that I didn't love at the time, but now with his expanded filmography i kind of want to revisit uh maybe ahead of the killer his new one but i i remember i saw one review that i've always loved which is someone pointed out that you have to wait i think two two plus hours for brad pitt to get hot and they said more suspenseful than any hitchcock movie could hope to attain the i mean i I, if if someone put on benjamin button i'd absolutely Mm -hmm. watch it i have there's it's just one I don't know if this ever happens to you guys. Do you guys ever get that where you go, you know, <laughs> bless you, where you go, you know, with my limited time, I sense this one is not great. And I, yeah. I just, I, I'll get to it when I get to it maybe, but I'm going to watch other things. That's, that's how I that's, felt about Benjamin Button. That's, that's me. Uh, that's me working my way through De Palma and staring down the barrel of wise guys, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh I, I just, I just really like one more movie. Oh, uh, you will. He uh, woke the beast. Brian De Palma's uh, Wise Guys. Uh, the Palma's. Of course, eyes. you would like that movie. That is such an Edwin movie. It's great. I'm with, I have a poster of that. It's a great movie. I Joe totally Piscopo forgot. and Danny DeVito. Yeah, that's right. I forgot he made that movie. I totally forgot. That's 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 the only serious oddball comedy that man has ever done, besides the one he did in the '70s, which are like. Art house, gold art type of style pictures, but this is a like full blown on oddball comedy. I forgot to mention that movie. I changed my my mind about Bruce Million. And Wise I, guys, I will now say uh, this is the one I think I scooped Edwin on. We'll see his reaction. Uh, I hope this is good radio. I would say John Cassavetti's Gloria. Uh, one of the wait, things- wait, 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 w
fuck are you talking about, man? Gloria? What does that have to do anything? Uh, you, hey, can I speak? Edwin, can I speak? Yeah, speak. <laughs> well, so so John Cassavetes prior actually to Gloria and Killing of a Chinese Bookie had uh, only made, uh, and, and I love that, I mean, only is not the right word, but his focus had been on uh, real people in real situations and very complex love relationships. Uh, shadows, um, a, a Child is Waiting, I think it's called, Too Late Blues, Faces, Husbands, Minnie and Moskowitz, A Woman Under the Influence. All of these movies, none of them were genre movies. All of these movies had been about people that you could have lived next door to going through really difficult, uh, you know, just fighting, trying to be alive, be vital, be misfits, the, the sort of Cassavetes formula. And that would actually reassert itself in his last few films, uh, Opening Night and Love Streams. But he made two movies. The funny thing about Killing of a Chinese Bookie is that even though Killing of a Chinese Bookie which I love, it's a great movie, is ostensibly about the mafia. It still is is really a character study of Ben Gazzara. Um, and it's Ben Gazzara, he runs a nightclub. He's still a, a very identifiably Cassavetes lead where he's a misfit guy. He loves this misfit family he's created. And he's just trying to find his way out of a fix. Gloria is actually a genre picture. Uh, it actually has a really tight genre plot, which is that, she is the wife of a gangster and she becomes responsible for this kid. And she's trying to stay one step ahead of these hitmen who are, it's like, it reads like, and it was one of his biggest hits and it was remade in a way by, um, uh. as the Leon, the professional, uh, you know, and then he took it and he, he made changes. He made a lot of interesting, weird changes. Luke Besson? Thank you so much, yeah. Wait, no, uh, he didn't do Gloria. He didn't do the remake. No, he did The Professional. Leon The Professional. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the Sidney Lumet remake with Sharon Stone. Uh, Luke Besson uh, made Leon The Professional and it just took Gloria and inverted it. Uh, he changed the huh. boy to a girl and he changed the girl to a boy. Uh, and then he called it The Professional. Um, and then he added a really weird, uh, cringe, almost sexual thing. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, most people do. Uh, the the nevertheless nevertheless uh, I, that's one I would mention. Uh, I think weirdly the uh, the the big director hiding in broad daylight is Martin Scorsese, um, whose mm. filmography has a number of really weird departures that sometimes are fascinating. The ones I think of most of all are Alice doesn't live here anymore, which I don't know anyone would have thought he would do after Mean Streets. I think now a brilliant career decision, won Ellen Burstyn the Oscar. And it's, it's uh, you know, it, it, and Scorsese himself has always, Connor, to your point, I think Scorsese has always wanted to say, I want to take on this challenge specifically because no one would think I would direct this movie. I don't want to become the guy who's the mafia guy I, or whatever it would be, you know, the bad boy behavior guy. So Alice doesn't live here anymore. About a single mother goes on an odyssey with her her son, and eventually, it's the Daughter. only the, the only Scorsese movie to be turned into a sitcom. Uh, if anybody wants that little trivia bit, got turned into Alice, uh, and then Kundun. I don't think anybody would have thought Scorsese would make a movie about the Dalai Lama. Although now, in retrospect, the spiritual aspect of it would probably seem obvious. Uh, Age of Innocence. I don't know that anyone would be like, oh, Scorsese is going to make a movie about an Edith Wharton novel of the Gilded Age uh, or pre-Gilded Age. I don't know if it's exactly yeah, that cool. one feels because Kundun now there's like a trilogy 
that you could put sort of put it with, with soon to be tetralogy did you guys yeah. hear jesus For... too he's coming back baby <laughs> am i the am i the one who's the most excited about this wait what what's I... happening dude the pope Mercedes told making... scorsese the pope told scorsese please make a movie about jesus that could that people could understand in modern times and scorsese put aside his grateful dead project and is writing a jesus movie uh, about Jesus in contemporary times. And people are speculating the movie Scorsese originally wanted to make when he was a teenager and going to go to seminary was doing the passion in the Lower East Side. It was going to be Jesus in New York in the 60s in the Lower East Side. And everyone is everyone who's like me, who's a nerd about this stuff, is like, is he going to do that? Anyway, Connor, go for it. Sorry. The Pope, the Pope is, the Pope is like, hey, Scorsese, I got some cool extra that jesus did that we don't have in the bible i got uh, some books no one's ever read yeah read these uh, gnostic gospels like, come yeah. look at these yeah what if oh my gosh what if scorsese was the first like civilian to be welcomed into the vatican to view their alleged like documentation and the blood of oh, that'd be crazy and it's like man there's scorsese gets back he's like there's a lot there's a lot of there's a lot of here about Jesus hanging out with the Italian mafia, so I'm gonna have to put my old Scorsese spin on this one. I like Scorsese enters and then he's never seen again. Yeah. He just elevates. He... Well, what I love is like, I mean, forgive me for this for everybody who doesn't care about this stuff, and please know I respect that this means nothing to a lot of people for very good reason. I just love that Pope Francis. Yeah, it's like who's the director we need right now? He's like, give me Marty Scorsese on the phone, and then Scorsese's <laughs> like, yeah. he's like, yeah, Pope, what's up? He's like, Marty, we need a movie about Jesus, and Marty's like, he's like, what are you doing right now? I'm gonna make this Jonah Hill movie about Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. Pope's like, Marty, I need you to put that on the side. He's writing it. You guys need to read these interviews. Like Scorsese's yeah. on fire about this thing. I think it's. I mean, I think it actually does make sense. You know, it's it's. Because I guess you would say like 30 years ago, you wouldn't think of Scorsese, but I think now it makes sense. Oh, yeah, uh, post, who else would post, you call? I wouldn't call anybody else. Yeah. If you if you charge me with that task, how to make maybe the tenets of love and compassion and mercy like applicable, what director believes in that and could contextualize it? I'd say it's Scorsese. Give me Scorsese. It's, and it's, your, it's Catholic specifically? Catholic. Oh, for sure. You know, if, uh, if, it was, if it was high up Jewish, it gets Spielberg on the phone. <laughs> but Jesus is a Jew. The other the other person you call, but they, but I don't think I don't think Spielberg would touch it because Jesus has been so gentile, unfortunately. The I thing, mean, if there was like a story about like a like a if like a high up, I don't know how the Job, structure of the Jewish. We're talking thing, about like a, the if, Pentateuch, if, Moses. If a really high up Richard. rabbi was like, we got to make a movie, we got to move in and help out. I was going to say, I think at the time Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. Must have felt like mm -hmm. what Kubrick's doing a Thackeray novel. A I think that hour, yeah, it would have been like, huh? Even oh. though if you knew Kubrick and that he wanted to do Napoleon, you'd go, oh right, the rough draft from Napoleon, maybe I don't know. And then Wes Craven's Music of the Heart, I wanted to throw out there, which a lot of people don't think about. It was like wrestling to your point, oh, yeah, Connor. Wes Craven was like, I am sick of making horror movies, and he made a Meryl Streep Dangerous Minds teacher movie Is called like a Music. Violinist? Uh huh music of the heart uh and then the last one i'll throw out there even though i think in retrospect like scorsese alfonso cuaron has just wanted to make departure movies his whole life i actually think um weirdly gravity when i heard that or you could swap that out with a little princess 
or the Harry Potter movie. I don't like all of Quaron's movies. You're like Quaron's doing that, and then you watch it, except for the ones that make sense, like Roma and Itumama Tambien. So I, I Quaron movies are all departures. Uh, all right, Daniel, last word. What was that movie you wanted to talk about? Oh yeah, I had forgotten. Francis Ford Coppola made a picture in the '90s called Jack. Culture and final thoughts. Who wants to go first? I'll take it from here. Been watching a lot of pictures, you know. Been a pretty busy bee. Busy bee, you know. You're just repeating your last no, podcast. I don't care, oh, man. Are you gonna sting someone? Now, nah, look, look, look. Uh, I recently we uh, like like Connor and Daniel. I, I recently just saw a movie called uh, the Spider Something Verse into the Verse. That's uh, exactly right. Yeah, across. Yeah, the that whatever it's called. Uh, Spider Man Spider Something Verse. Yeah, I saw it and I was like, you know what? A cup of tea, a cup of tea. I like the first one a lot, though. Um, a lot of betrayal, a lot, a lot of hate uh, toward this, uh, toward someone who portrayed a certain someone, uh, and uh, also the uh, main person that says is a good guy is actually a villain, and it's a total. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pretty uh, ending. Uh, to be continued. It could have been another hour. It could have been a three-hour movie since everything's three hours. Uh, to be concluded, no. Well, anyway, anyway, Craig. Anyway, if, you know, La- if Last of the Greats isn't three hours, I'm rioting. Yeah, you should do what he did to you. If Last of the Greats is not projected on film, do you remember yeah. when Daniel like worked for a year plus on his short, and you were like, "If it's not projected on film, I'm not coming." Did you ever watch it, Edwin? Did you ever watch I my film? Watch. I didn't watch it. Oh, okay. That's I fine. need. I, I need this. I need. I need uh, see it still you gotta send me a link to it or something and we'll all be there for you you know we'll all be there for you yeah yeah i'm gonna send you a link i'd love you have to give me a five-star review on well no you have to give me an honest review on letterboxd because i I will probably not gonna like it oh we'll see all right edwin anything else um what's something cool i did forgot what it was (laughs) i'm gonna talk because you can't remember you're sorry I'm sorry, Connor. All right. Oh, sound bite that. I'm sorry, Connor. That's a sound bite. <laughs> All right, Connor. Uh, I, because I wanted to, I wanted to list a couple movies. I just wanted to, uh, Daniel speak. I, when I visited him, he let me borrow a bunch of movies and I watched almost all of them so far. And half of them I really liked. Um, I'd never seen Paul Schrader's Hardcore, which was really good. Um, I had never seen the original Pulse, uh, uh, the uh, Japanese horror film. Oh, I love that really, one. Which is really good, even though it doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> like, by the end, you're like, uh, what's going on? But, metaphor, um, metaphor. Yeah, um, the the 19, I think, 50s Night of the Demon, aka Curse of the Demon, which was really fun, like satanic B movies, sort of reminded me of like Wicker Manish, uh, sort of thing. Uh, Alex Cox's Walker, which I'd never seen, which was something else, uh, interesting. You know, not as good as Repo Man, but uh, probably the best one I watched. Um, I've been really, I really want to rewatch it. I think I, I might before I return them to you, Daniel. Is uh, I'd never seen Mona Lisa, the uh, Bob Hoskins and. Right. Kathy Tyson, Michael Caine movie. That movie rules. You can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. I'm presumably still playing Resident Evil 3 uh, Mondays at 6 p.m. California time. And I do D&D Tuesday evening, twitch.tv slash nerdholla. 
And I will just do my pop culture this week on um, Cormac McCarthy. By the time you hear this, the uh, writer Cormac McCarthy, uh, he passed away in June. So this will be several weeks after his passing. And I've only read a few books by Cormac McCarthy. Uh, One given to me by my my friend, Jeff Hall. My friend Jeff Hall gave me a a really good, I mean, I've never read anything bad by Cormac McCarthy, but I've only read three books of his. I've read The Crossing, which was uh, the middle of his trilogy that really cemented his legacy and uh, people's awareness. I've read uh, The Road, which I think is the book most people have read, his apocalypse novel that won the Pulitzer. He wrote this book in 1985 called Blood Meridian, um, which uh, most people feels his masterpiece. And I, I do have to say, I, I would agree, but I've only read three of his books. And it's a really, really unsettling novel. Cormac <sighs> McCarthy is known for this beautiful stylistic, idiosyncratic stylistic writing that almost feels Old Testament. His sentences go on forever. He uses words that no one else would use uh, that uh, people can easily sort of do a, a parody, a vaudeville of his style, but his actual style is pretty mind blowing. and. Uh, people have been trying to adapt Blood Meridian for 40 years, uh, including Martin Scorsese, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, and countless other people. They just haven't been able, Ridley Scott, no one's been able to do it. And uh, most people say the reason is probably why it's hard to adapt James Joyce's Ulysses as well, which is that uh, really it's so wrapped up in the word that when you try to translate it over to the screen, it's not the violence, because you can always figure out the violence, in my opinion. Uh, yes, the, the book is is unbelievably violent. Um, and yes, the book is unbelievably unsettling. It's about this boy uh, who's only ever known as the boy uh, who joins this group that is tasked with uh, basically putting down marauding Native Americans along the border. And while at first they feel they have some justification for doing it because these Native, Native Americans are attacking towns, the group, which is headed by one of the creepiest characters ever in literature called the judge, who's essentially feels ultimately like Satan. Um, They just, they descend into drunkenness and murder and they just go around killing and the boy is witness to this killing. Uh, And then the ending, which I will not give away is one of the most unsettling endings ever. And the judge, which is an incredible character is given to these monologues uh, in the book that are just, horrible uh, and horrific, but it's this thing I've realized that brilliant writers do. When you wanna talk about the world the way that it is, and you feel like I can't do this because it's too painful, Uh, people will not accept it. People will not accept me talking about human nature this way. If you have a bad guy and the bad guy says that those things, then it becomes palatable to the audience because they can go, wow, that's like, I really am going to think about it, but that dude's bad. So I understand why that dude is saying it. And I I, I think that Balzac uh, did this in the 19th century with a character called Votron. And I just wonder if Cormac McCarthy had read Balzac and then did it with the judge. But I, I, all I want, I know I'm rambling, but I'll just say that if if you you feel like taking on Blood Meridian, you have to wrestle with things. And I think that McCarthy, like our greatest, um, our greatest, artists and narrative. Uh, I I think if you really want to reach for that brass ring in art, you have to try to see the world the way it is. Uh, And I don't think that your ideology or your optimism or pessimism, I I think you have to leave that at the door uh, if you're trying to get at truth. 
And when you, you're trying to really get at truth, you have to leave everything behind and try to write something that is true. Um, and in Blood Meridian, Cormac McCarthy gets at a kind of horrible truth about human nature um, that I think is worthwhile if you're up for that read. So that's my pop culture final thoughts. Also, we just want to let you know that we are feverishly working behind the scenes to finish our summer season and actually launch some big series in our fall and winter seasons that we've been working on for several years. So behind the scenes for the next few weeks, we are going to be working like mad to uh, announce and launch and deliver some of what we hope are exciting things, exciting events. Uh, while we're doing that, we're going to repost what we think are some of the more interesting podcasts we've now done over three years. Uh, as always, I want to thank everybody. My pod, the, I want to thank our podcast team. Uh, you can find out about everything we do at secretmovieclub.com. You can get tickets at Eventbrite, secretmovieclub.com. Uh, you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. Thank you guys uh, for for more podcasts. Thank you all very much. Have a great week. I love you, Tim. Edwin, it's good to be back with all you guys. Jesus Christ. Craig, give me one movie up on the list. Give me one movie, man. Come on. What a prude movie, man. August? No, July. I want July. I want July. Bergman's face to face. Go f off.